This is the Diabolique Radio Show, and I'm your host, Stephen Slaughterhead, and that's my real name. Today I'm speaking with David Kleiler, former artistic director of the Coolidge Corner Theater and film professor at Babson College. And on this episode, we're going to talk about Stanley Kubrick's 1980 film, The Shining, the film that was kind of maligned when it first came out and over the years has, has, has critically become one of the top horror films of all time. It's a horror film beyond measure, and we're psyched to talk about it. Hope you enjoy it. David, how are you? Well, I'm doing okay. Um, the thing is, like, there's a timeline in this, and I can't, I can't, it's going to be hard for me not to refer to the Boston Massacre yesterday. Um, the, Bo- uh, the Boston Marathon. The, the Boston Marathon yeah. Massacre, okay. Um, We're recording that in the shadow of, of a, um, a day after the event, so it's heavy on the minds. And, and I would add that for, um, for listeners who don't know, we, we're here in Boston, you know, recording this. So it's, uh, we're, we're not really displaced from what happened yesterday. We're, we're actually right on the marathon route. So well, it's heavy on the mind. The um, other thing with The Shining, we're dealing with a filmmaker who's an extremely brilliant but very complex filmmaker. And there is a film that is out now called Room 237, which attempts to uh, go through the complexities of what might be going on in Stanley Kubrick's mind in the making of The Shining. Mm. And so it's a question of whether any of that is valid or whether uh, this basically... He has made an extremely intricate, maze-like film that um, is tr- truly the product of, of, of Kubrick's mind, uh, as opposed to you know being open to that kind of uh, multiple interpretations. You know, Rodney Asher's film presents some some fascinating theories, and there there are a few moments that you know may, they they make it seem hmm this is plausible, but then it goes into a couple things that are in my opinion, obviously outlandish, you know, just way out there, but it's entertaining. And it's essentially uh, five main theories that the film represents. There's the, um, uh, the idea that Kubrick is making a statement about the, uh, the American Indian, the uh, uh, colonialization. And of course, and the, their, with uh, that, you know, it's because American colonialization. of where the hotel is yes built on a uh, indian burial ground and then um the uh manager of the hotel I, I believe he he briefly says that when the hotel was being constructed the overlook hotel they fought off a couple of um indian uprisings in order to go through with the constructions and it's built on an old indian burial ground right uh um, among the other things that uh are presented as a, a reason for this theory that the interviewee has about the um, Kubrick statement about American Indians. And that's certainly one big theory that's there, there in Room 237. On, and it's generally known, uh, at least that's evidence that's in the film, that, that that's part of the story. Is there any evidence in the rest of Kubrick's work that he's concerned about the plight of Native, Native Americans? I can't think of any. Yeah. I can't either. <laughs> they they may be there though. That's not to say that they don't exist. Believe well, me. Well, you know, I don't quite know with the, you know? the theories of that because the um, the closest I can think of is a film that Cooper doesn't really have a lot of responsibility for uh, the way he has with the rest of his films, like say uh, Spartacus, where you have you know the poor 
slaves, you know, versus the Romans, and then he takes the side of the slaves. Well, the shining doesn't work out that way. But just like the, the, the political concerns of Stanley Kubrick, is hmm. uh, it an exercise? But there are some other theories about about uh, what what is going on in The Shining, uh, because you know one of the things I like to think of is just a, a good thriller. Oh, oh, it really, it, it really is a, a, a terrific th- thriller. And you know, the first thing that jumps to my mind is the fact that uh, when The Shining was released in 1980, it wasn't received that way. It's it's paced very slowly. Mm-hmm. And at the time, it, you know, it, it was it's it, that was against the norm for a you know quote unquote horror film. You know, critics didn't really, for the for the most part, I believe it wasn't really it, it was condemned for that. But but I think what's happened over the years is um, the critical consensus. This is a film where the uh, like many other great films, where the critical consensus of it has changed, and the pacing of the film. And it's and it's very slow reveals are the structure uh, for its great and disturbing effectiveness. In other words, you know, like today, generally a horror movie would get to a certain point very quickly uh, as if that, you know, just to, you know, give the audience what they want. But um, it's it's slow construction is, um, you know, that's you're walking a fine line there between having the audience be disinterested or and risking their interest in the film. And, and if they're with you, um, what what I think is created here, what, what Kubrick did is, is uh, you know, this very strong f- foundation for uh, eventual disturbance. Well, it's place in, in the film history and, and the genre and in the hands of an, a legitimate auteur. Uh, it's not unlike the kind of way that Hitchcock's Vertigo has mm. been. When mm. it came out, it wasn't didn't have the elements that one expected from a Hitchcock film, and now the critics are voting it's the best film of all time. And you've got The Shining, which uh, clearly, as you've said, does not have the um, you know it, it just didn't fit what people went to go to see either from a Kubrick yeah. film yeah. or from a horror film. You know, I think it was the one film of his that didn't receive a Academy Award nomination. It, hmm. it um, it's almost like saying you're supposed to give me as the filmmaker that you are, you're supposed to give me what I expect. And, um, yes. you know, maybe it got to this in, in the years after its release. Maybe it, um, you know, I, I think, I think the character of Kubrick, you know, the man himself has the ability to make you look at his film, film, you know, films in retrospect and think oh, maybe we were wrong. You know, he's smart enough. We, we think he's smart enough to have put something over on us without our knowing. Well, that's possibly true. But getting back to the, uh, the various theories about what the film's really about, we've covered the uh, Native American situation, the Indian burial ground situation. Hmm. Uh, what else uh, uh, are the other, the other theories? Um, there is the belief that the film is a veiled message that Kubrick himself filmed and helped film and fabricate the U.S. moon landing? Oh, yeah. Lots of people know that theory. Um, but why would he do that? Probably because the government has put him under such restrictions that he can't say anything about it. But like working under the microscope of a censor, you can say something without directly saying it. And which is what some of the greatest filmmakers have yeah. always done. I always think of uh, Louis Bunuel's Verediana, yeah. which he made 
uh, in Sp- the last film he made in Spain, or the end of North by Northwest. Oh, North by Northwest. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and so you have what you have in say Bridiana. It's really an attack on Franco's government. Did you really? Did you see that um, Bridiana recently? No, but in the oh, last oh, okay, ten years. Okay, because I, I think it played. Uh, um, I, I guess they did the retrospective over at the Harvard Film Archive last right. year. And uh, I I had not seen it prior to. Well, they even year. had the uh, the Spanish censors on the set. Yeah. And they cleared the film, and then when it opened up at the Cannes Film Festival, uh, there was the French critics that said, "Oh wait a minute, this is a veiled attack on Franco's government." Hmm. And then then we will never name another film in Spain again. So that you know, but people like that, uh, filmmakers like that, Hitchcock, Manuel, Kubrick, mm-hmm. can be doing things other than what they seem to be about. And that's certainly the point of this room 237 film. You know, but and Kubrick was that way, because here he is, you know, holed up in England, uh, and he won't set foot on the United States, and yet he makes all these films set in the United States. Yeah, you know, and yet the film, and yet The Shining has this real strong American presence. Um, and mm-hmm. I think it's fascinating that he being so displaced from... Uh, the United States was able to do something that uh, really, really gave you that sense of it. In fact, I, I, there's one small story that I heard that I thought was kind of telling about that, what you just said. And that is w- towards the uh, end of the film, when Jack Torrance has uh, finally lost it and he's he's going after Wendy with the axe. Mm-hmm. He takes the axe. He slams it into the door, which I think is terrifically filmed. And uh, yes. then he sticks his head into the door in this classic moment. And he says, here's Johnny. Well, Kubrick didn't get it because he'd been living in. And, and that line was improvised by Nicholson. Kubrick didn't get it because he'd been living in England so long. He didn't know, get the, the, the gist of he didn't get the uh, Ed McMahon's introduction to Johnny Carson. Oh, that. Uh, so I thought that was kind I of telling. I didn't know that. Because I think that's such, that's such a great and met one of the most memorable moments in the film. And he almost didn't use that scene because he didn't get it. He didn't. He almost didn't use that ad lib because he didn't get it. And and then and then now here we have one of the. I think the AFI has it among their top movie quotes of all time. I would uh, concur with that. The Apollo moon landing thing is sort of a head scratcher, but I'm surprised. Yeah, that was pretty outlandish. Interesting. Uh, and uh, what's great about Room 237 is the degree to which each of the uh, uh, nutcases that are, 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 are reading <laughs> a lot into the uh, into the uh, did you think film. any of their theories were valid? I'm sorry, I interrupted, but no, I think more. What I liked was the way uh, the filmmaker of uh, 237 they went about uh, proving these various crazy theories. Yeah, another one being his. Um Another another theory, theory being that this the shining is also a uh, an exercise for Kubrick's um, horror about what happened in the Holocaust. Yeah, that's another yet another theory. And uh, but again, where does that uh, a horror of war? We've seen that in say Paths of Glory, and uh, the horror of nuclear war done in its own way with Doctor Strangelove. But again, I, as I think through the work, uh, the body of work that Kubrick has done, I came up saying like, okay, because uh, you have the whole, the, in Room 237, you have this whole Holocaust uh, e- explication. Mm-hmm. And yeah, 
and the filmmakers go through a good job of making that a plausible theory. Mm -hmm. uh, but my own take on The Shining, and especially after having seen Room 237, is that because the kind of thing that Kubrick did do in the film was the maze thing at the end. Right. That wasn't in the book. Wasn't uh, in the was, book, yeah. Uh, Kubrick's invention. And um, I, I have my own theory about that, but Go I'm ahead. sorry. Go what ahead. is it? Well, there's a part in the room 327 where they examine the structure of the Overlook Hotel. Mm -hmm. And there's the scenes in which Danny was filmed with a Steadicam uh, you know, riding around on his plastic big wheel. And Hubris... Hubris. Kubrick does a, this, I just think, such an incredible job of establishing the structure of the film, of establishing not just that, the, you know, the area of the film, but the, um, um, the, the mise-en-scene, the, 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 uh, the feeling, the tone, which is really important. I'm told you that he showed a racer head to the crew just to give him the idea of the tone he was going for. Mm -hmm. So in doing that, having uh, Jack um, be walked through the hotel and having um, Danny, following Danny ride through the hotel, what we're being presented is the structure of the hotel. As if in the same way, the structure of the hedge maze is a conundrum. If you go, like like the... Uh, manager says, if you go in there, give yourself an hour because you're going to get lost. Yes. The process here with the hotel, which I think Kubrick is going for, and I think that they present it really interestingly in room 327, is if you follow the lead that Kubrick presents, the actual um, construction of the hotel, the, the actual way it's, it's uh, built on the inside, it's impossible. Like, the elevators cannot be in that space. It's like there are windows where windows actually cannot be. It's a, um, I think I had heard it referred to as some sort of, uh, uh, the structure of the hotel is a spatial disturbance. You can't make sense of it, even though it's saying you should be able to. That's why I think, that's why I like the metaphor of the maze at the end, because to a certain extent, it is a more complex view of dislocation. Uh, mm -hmm. that you have in following Danny around uh, the hotel. It's like you think yes. you can follow this, but if you really look at the course of what the, he's presented you, um, physically it can't make sense. Well, the nice thing is, I mean, for me, I take a much more conventional approach to the thing. I don't know about the Apollo 13 and uh, the Holocaust <laughs> theories yeah. and, and all of that, but there's no question about it. As a suspense thriller, the increasing sense of dislocation Mm -hmm. culminating in the maze and culminating in, in, in being traced all the way through with the continual sense of of Jack Nicholson's becoming unhinged. Mm -hmm. um, that, to me, is what makes the film compelling, but on a much more basic level, uh, as a suspense thriller. David, let me ask you this. I'd, l I'd love to get your, your opinion on this. Um, my belief is that a great director is also a master of point of view without yes. it without explaining it to the audience he can he can um shift a point of view and inform you and at the same time disturb you as mm -hmm. great directors can so so let's just say as some people have uh, kubrick is a master of the point of view my i i'm curious to know whose point of view do you think this film is well that is a really good question 
And you have in The Shining, with his sense of dislocation, something that he is able to do as well, uh, but with less, well, not as much, less clarity, perhaps. Not he, much he, do you mean Kubrick? Eyes Wide Shut, for example. Okay. Yeah. Which is a film that, okay, what's going on here and what's going, you know, who, who, who's, who's doing this? And of course, he plays with that in, say, 2001 A Space Odyssey, where there are point of view shots from uh, the computer, from mm-hmm. Hal. Mm-hmm. And he's fully yeah. aware of that as a filmmaker. But uh, here, um, we. It's really kind of hard enough because, to a certain extent, we trace Jack Nicholson's, Jack Torrance's um, becoming unhinged. Right, right. And we do get shot things that we see it from his perspective. He thinks he's right about what's going on. And you have so many great surrealist moments in the film yeah. where you have, mm-hmm. you know, in the, in, the, in the bar and all those kinds of things where these apparitions uh, come and all of that. But yet you still have Wendy. And one of the great moments, I think, in the film is when she goes up to his typewriter. Yeah. Oh, that is such a twisted point of view. Oh, oh my gosh. Her approaching the typewriter and then the way the camera moves over the typewriter to reveal the text. Yes. Uh, creepy. It's a great creepy. shot. He actually filmed that numerous times in because what Jack, I believe, had actually written... Uh, in its total in totality, in, and was included, I believe, in a European versions of the film is various th- that he had written. All fun and no play makes Jack a dull yeah. boy. All boy. work and no play. All, all work and no, no play. play. Sorry, Jack makes Jack a dull, a dull boy. boy. Yeah. He had written that in a number of different languages, which um, she reads. But uh, Kubrick, I believe, he yeah. he excised that from the American version. But it was a very strange. Uh, reveal and and from her point of view Wendy's point of view yeah so you don't have then this is not exactly like in a Hitchcock sense a point of view film uh, you do have point the use of point of view and, intricate use yeah and again I, I think I go back I, I think it's a good thing uh, the way you described the way the hotel is with Danny riding around in it and that's in my mind one of the first uses a really first striking uses of the Steadicam uh, in, a film. In, in historically it actually was I mean, I think they'd used the Steadicam before on Rocky and, um, oh, God. I, I, Rocky is an instance I recall prior to The Shining. Mm-hmm. But uh, The Shining was, I believe, one film where, and I'm, excuse me if I'm getting his name wrong, um, Garrett Brown, the inventor, mm-hmm. the inventor of the Steadicam, was, uh, committed himself long term to helping Stanley Kubrick with The Shining. And, uh, yeah, but it certainly shows. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. uh, and it certainly works for the overall effect of the film. And one of the interesting things in this movie, Room 237, which you're probably going to be doing more to get people to see than, you know, than, than uh, is that they really do, um, in, in one of the over-analysis parts, uh, they do a whole diagram of what the hotel would be like and how, do you, how does Danny get from point A to point B. Yeah. It doesn't make any real sense, which goes along with what I think. If you investigate it, it doesn't make sense, but I think it's generally perceived that it does. But I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I still think it contributes overall to the feeling of increasing unsettlement in the film. That's why I say I go back to the thing, does it work as a horror film? Or, yes. or even even just general claustrophobia. Yeah. I mean, because great horror is in a sense um, you know, the, the art of claustrophobia. Well, it's that, and what's interesting, the, the juxtaposition of this empty hotel 
uh, where mm-hmm. Jack Nicholson and his family can roam, roam around among whoever it may or may not be there, you know, depending mm-hmm. on whatever hallucinations uh, go on, and I think contribute to the gradual unhinging of, yeah. of, of the Jack Nicholson character's mind. It's, it's just disturbing to think that he he and his family think that this large place is going to be the thing that's right for them. The thing that, you know, heals them and the problems that are going on in their life. Ugh. Well, disturbing. Yeah. He, he calls it homey. <laughs> well, that's it. Because after all, and I know that uh, Stephen King preferred the television remake of yeah. The Shining. yeah. It was closer to the original book. Oh, sure. Uh, and yet, it still has elements of another Stephen, uh, Stephen King film, M- Misery, where you're dealing with a character who has writer's block. Right, and seclusion. And uh, Yeah, and seclusion. And so that's clearly that part of what Stephen King, who one of the most annoyingly prolific writers uh, out there, but that he would right, have two books both of which I think made good films, uh, dealing with his own uh, dealings with moments of writer's block. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, Terrifying. Yeah, and it's going to be terrifying for somebody who thinks of uh, as a writer the way Stephen King does. It's, it's writer's block that is based in the fear of just general economics. He needs to support his family. And what's he going to do? And you have that, and then that's why I think the idea of how do you find your way out, this is why, you know, the... The endless corridors of the hotel, and then culminating in the maze scene. David, you I think did, it's great metaphors. Oh, sure, sure. In, in fact, um, in answer to your question, the question, "How do you find your way out?" Mm-hmm. Well, what you do is um, you jump really far to one side, and then you cover up your tracks in the snow, yeah. and then you run as fast as you can. That's how you get out. That's what the end of The Shining tells me. That's how you. That's how you get out. <laughs> You That's cover your tracks. You, you jump really far to the left and cover your tracks. <laughs> Which, of course, you know, in terms of all the theories that are going right. on in room 237, it's like, right. like, like what? Because I, I do oh, see... Oh, David, that reminds me of something else. Go ahead. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I, I think it's my belief that the scene that takes place in room 237 is, is the heart of the film. And it's also an example, I believe, of very intricate layering of points of view. Now, hear me out on this one, because I'd be interested in your opinion as to... What of all the characters in the film, who do you think is the most trustworthy point of view? But before you answer that, let me present to you this. If I I recall, the scene in 327 starts with the camera moving towards the doorknob at Danny's eye level. At the eye, if I could Mm -hmm. be wrong, but I believe it's at the eye level of a child. So you can say Danny's way off on another end of the hotel and he's shining. You know, he's he's his point of view. This could all be happening in his point of view. And then we cut to. Um, a little bit later, going into the room, Jack see or yeah, Jack sees the apparition in the bathtub. Mm-hmm. His point of view. At some point during this scene, we also get Halloran's point of view, Scatman Crothers. Mm-hmm. At some point during this scene, we get the point of view from the ghost, seeing Jack Nicholson okay. walk toward her. Four points of view, perhaps just in the confines of this scene. Are there any in this film that you find trustworthy? Well, of course, at the start uh, of watching the film, it's the Scatman Crothers character. Right. He may be perhaps the... I, I, I like think if I, had to, if I had to select one, he's, to me, he is, uh, you know, the, the trustworthy point of view in this. I at least he's the one who I, identifies with Danny in some sort of very quickly established mentoring type situation. Yes. 
And to a certain extent, when he's gotten rid of, to me, um, I, I you know still feel a sense of loss with him. Here's a, a person that I regard as reliable, and in yeah, at the point when uh, yeah, Jack that's Nichols true. was becoming that's increasingly true. unreliable. But I think he also lied to Danny. If he if he's a reliable point of view, he does say to when Danny asks him about room three two seven, he said. Uh, Danny said to Halloran, you're afraid of what's there. And Halloran says, and I'm paraphrasing, I am not. But you have no business going in there. You stay away from that mm-hmm. room, he warns. So what's up with that? Can you, re- can you really trust anyone's point of view in this film? Well, no. And as we watch each of the characters becoming more skeptical, you know, mm. poor Wendy. Just overwhelmed. Uh, like, <laughs> Just uh, crazy okay. overwhelmed. She can't process what's going on. Yeah. And of course, you know, you know, I'm always curious about why Kubrick cast her in the film. I feel like he regretted it. I think it's been said that uh, um, Shelley Duvall's delivery of lines was something that Kubrick sometimes had a problem with it. And we know she had a nervous breakdown during the making of the film. She was she was so stressed she was even losing hair, apparently. Oh, is that right? Yeah, she was super stressed. And, and so was, you know, it was supposed to be, a what, three months? And they, Kubrick turned it into a one-year production. Um, you know, Nicholson would throw out new pages of the script that he'd get right before they were going to film in the morning. And he's just like, ah, you know, they'll give me the lines right before they turn on the camera. You know, it was uh, you know, a terrific, <laughs> terrific film. But I wonder if if he managed that stress. He created, maybe he created this ambiance of stress in such a way that he created such an incredible film. So it's in this feeling that comes through. Well, maybe it's the, uh, we, were, we were having... Well, the Nicholson character's breakdown, uh, Jack Torrance's uh, uh, breakdown. Uh, I mean, we, we do see him. That's where I still like go back to sort of like a, a clear line hmm. uh, that, okay, is there, is, is there a character arc? And you hmm. well, you do have that with um, the Jack Torrance. And, and for Wendy. And for Wendy, she actually, you'd, you'd think she wouldn't be able to get out of this, but she does. Yeah. Um. But you can't trust anybody in this movie. Nobody, nobody can be trusted. Everybody's hiding something. Well, Kubrick's not known in his um, in films post nineteen sixty for creating characters mm. that are likable. You know something, David? I, I take back what I said. I think I think Wendy is a a likable and trustworthy character, but she has no backbone. Well, that's it. And she's definitely, definitely fragile mentally, yeah, yeah. and uh, and maybe that's why because she has been that way. She was in a lot of Robert Altman films. Uh, she had been a sort of fragile character anyway, mm-hmm. and she certainly is that here. But I'm trying to think of uh, in the uh, in the Kubrick films. Um, I mean, his films are somewhat cold and clinical. Yeah, and and The Shining, I would have to say. Um, in spite of all the allocates that people seem to now give it, it really is. I mean, it, these lines are delivered. Many, many of the lines in the film are delivered almost robotically, as if as if the characters are are just sort of stripped away archetypes. It's strange. It's strange. But yeah. Well, unlike Hitchcock, he was a master uh, a manipulator. Do you think there's a dehumanizing of the um, characters, or the actors, under great directors? What is great? But it's one of the great paradoxes about about uh, Kubrick. On the one hand, I do think uh, yeah, is you know, don't forget he, 
See, he wasn't on set directing them, so he's not having these great conversations with his actors about how do you want me to play this scene. Uh, no, there's a, there's a there's a real distance. I mean, Lolita, uh, good example. Hmm. But you have, like, say, in 2001: A Space Odyssey, the character that we get to know the best is the computer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hal, there's more human feeling in the character of Hal than there is in any of the live car- uh, uh, people in the film. I think that's a deliberate paradox in 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, but this is the kind of paradox that only somebody like Kubrick would perceive. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a fault in the film by any stretch of the imagination because in many ways, uh, 2000, there, again, there are several interpretations for 2001 A Space Odyssey, but among them is dehumanization. I mean... Is there any line of dialogue other than Hal's in 2001 A Space Odyssey that one would remember? There are lines of dialogue in, say, Dr. Strangelove that one would remember. But they're all comic lines. It makes the people look bad. It's like George C. Scott in the, in the mm. war room. Uh, and those are the lines from Dr. Strangelove that I remember the best. So Kubrick is not exactly warm and fuzzy. Uh, I think he was fascinated by the idea of like a weak protagonist being controlled by... Um, you know, larger forces, you know, like Malcolm McDowell. Uh, yeah. He presumably a, a, a strong-willed, and he liked people to think that. He was a very disturbing individual, um, Alex, in that film. Yeah. But then yet he's um, ultimately weak and controlled mm-hmm. by a system, uh, science or something like that. And maybe, maybe like here in The Shining, we have uh, uh, Jack, who's who's vulnerable, and yet he is controlled by whatever entity is in this hotel whatever whatever uh whatever jack has and i think of the you know that last shot of the movie with him in the photo mm-hmm. it's uh, you know yeah. whatever whatever jack has they want to bring it back i think i think grady the caretaker says at one point that jack was always the caretaker i mean i know they wanted uh, danny because of the, whatever they is this this entity at the hotel because of danny's shining ability but um with Jack, which which is really what the film is more about as opposed yes. to the book, um, it's it's the hotel that's toying with him. That's and that's, that's why of all the uh, Room Two Thirty Seven interpretations, the one that somehow you know makes the most symbolic sense to me is the fact that it's on the Indian burial ground, and mm-hmm. that to a certain extent there are spiritual forces at work. Yeah, and, and, and identified in the production design of the film. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of language in the film about this, and then you have to go back. But the rest of it um, strikes me as like, oh my god! Yeah. And who knows? And for a certain extent, you know, Kubrick, for the interpretation point of view, it's it's one thing. But there is in his films a sort of a playful, uh, a playfulness in some of his in some of the humor. And so, therefore, what one makes out of the scene where Danny goes into his room and there's the 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 dopey on the way, and he comes out less dopey because the, the character of Dopey from Snow White and Snow oh, right. isn't there. Yeah, yes. Like, oh, give me a break. The uh, the, and, the apparent ability of objects in this film to appear and then and it's it's the kind of thing. You know? There's a playfulness, yeah. uh, and, and, and it's it, accidental, it, actually. Myself, and a, uh, and uh, we know they make a good case yeah. for Kubrick. Certainly, would not be making continuity lapses. You know, continuity lapses happen. You know, but don't forget, this still has a film that. that is, you know, has a surrealist element to it. For example, there's one scene in, say, Fellini's Eight and a Half, which I regard as a surrealist film. 
where in one scene, the kid goes to confession, and then when he comes out of the confessional, the confessional, the confessional is a different shape and in a different part of the room. That's not a continuity lapse. It's deliberate. Hmm. And we have in uh, here, very well articulated in that room, uh, 237 film, uh, places where there are, which would seem to be continuity lapses. Mm-hmm. But I have a feeling it's just, uh, I think it's more hit, uh, Kubrick being mischievous. The color of the typewriter? Yeah. Um, That's mischievous. I think there's some furniture in the background that appears and disappears, yes. if I recall. Yes. And, and I just think um, he's, um, we don't want to do a deep meaning thing in any of that. And they're certainly not mistakes. He's just, I think he's just being mis- mischievous. <laughs> and uh, That's the fun part of just surrendering to the belief that uh, Kubrick can do no wrong. Right. You know, if you don't get it, he leaves his film open for interpretation and eh, he's probably having fun with you. You know? Oh, yeah. It's his attempt to make a horror movie. And, you know, and of course, I mean, they're just, they're just like even in 2001, A Space Odyssey, uh, you have that wonderful moment which has no relevance to the overall film at all. But one of the, uh, the astronauts is looking at the, uh, the directions on how to do a zero-gravity toilet. <laughs> That's yeah. a funny scene. Yeah. I mean, Cooper isn't exactly one known for, for that kind of humor. But it's, oh, my God, zero-gravity I mean, zero toilet. Hey, I got to go pee, and I've got to read the instructions for an, on a zero-gravity toilet. You know, it kind of makes me wonder, where is the humor in The Shining, you know? Is it, it is it in the, uh, the the Warner Brothers clips that they watch on TV? Yep. You know, I mean, uh, or is it just derived from we can't make sense of this, so let's just, uh, you know, we process it by uh, chuckling when we can't make uh, sense of something. Well, that's right. Room two thirty seven is. On the one hand, it may be just you know as much of a perfectionist as he was, and I think a good case can be made for how that shows in The Shining. He was a perfectionist. Oh my God, all the way. Until after the film was released, did you see? Did you happen to see it when it came out in theaters, or did you see it? I saw it when it came out in theaters. Of course, there, there. Apparently, for a week during its release, there were two minutes of the film at the end. After the photo of Jack at the end of the hallway, there's a scene with the hotel manager Wendy and Danny in the hospital, where the hotel manager says to Wendy, "We couldn't locate Jack's body." And this is after, even after, you know, this is after, uh, you know, we'd seen mm-hmm. uh, Jack there frozen mm-hmm. with his axe. And then, the, uh, you know, the manager says, we couldn't find his body. I guess it makes sense if the hotel, whatever entity it is, you know, reclaims it, reclaims him. And he was always there. And then Danny is handed the tennis ball, a tennis ball from the hotel, which I guess can be assumed is the tennis ball that led him to room 327. The tennis ball that the house offered to bring to you know okay. room to three two seven, but the the, I, the my point here is the interesting thing here is is that Kubrick realized he was wrong, and Ebert in his later writing on this supported Kubrick's decision to go back and take that two minutes out even after all the film the films were all in theaters he had he uh, Warner Brothers had asked the projectionist to cut this two minutes out because we didn't apparently uh, he believed he was wrong we didn't have to have any um you know bow wrapped on anything Mm -hmm. we we didn't need to know anything about what happened to jack he went all the way into release with that extra two minutes and then took it out a week later yeah well that's not unheard of in the history of 
It was Warner Brothers, right? And, uh, yeah, yeah. I would hope that maybe as we hear of films that some sometimes are discovered in, um, you know, theaters or, on, you know, in, in between walls during construction or something mm-hmm. like that, that maybe somewhere, somehow, a uh, uh, the extra two minutes at the end of The Shining might actually still exist somewhere or where that extra two minutes of footage uh, has gone, had gone, you know, that the uh, projectionist had cut you know, when it would be interesting to see if that could actually turn up sometime. But I do think that there are, you know, as a horror film, yeah, I think it is certainly psychological. Mm. You do have, and I think what works there is the places where the audience is disoriented. And I think the things which other people would say would be, yeah. uh, you know, continuity errors. Uh, there, there are certainly things that memory is being mischievous or disorienting because you're right to bring up the issue of point of view in, in the film because... It's fascinating. I think it's open for interpretation. You can go back and watch it again and, and, and just wonder who's actually... From who from whose vantage point are we seeing this? And who, you know, who are we trying? And to a certain extent, the, uh, the, the uh, little twin girls, the... Uh, oh, my God. I can't believe we've gone this far into the conversation without talking about the creepiest element in the whole thing. Yeah, of course, yeah. Oh, my God. It's genuinely creepy. Oh, David. And you know, you know what I, I, I have to tell you? What I love about that element of the film, about uh, these, these, uh, these two Grady girls, mm-hmm. who I guess in real life were two, twin girls, but in the book, in the film, they're, uh, they're sisters. And the way the composition of, the, of how they're photographed is disturbing. The lines in those simple images... It, it, it's like some sort of little bit of warped perspective that is just enough to be unsettling and disturbing. And and I, I believe that this was just really well thought out by Kubrick, that he had to know how this was going to float on screen because the minute you see those two girls... Well, the camera it's, work it's, here... You can't put it into... It, it just makes you feel weird. The camera work here, uh, I've noticed throughout Kubrick's work, more than other directors who try to avoid uh, too many shots that are purely perpendicular. Mm. Uh, there are a lot of perpendicular shots. The, there, there's a symmetry mm-hmm. in his compositions. Yes, he uses angles when you have the, the shots of, um, what's his face, Sterling Hayden as Jack D. Ripper in, uh, in Dr. Strangelove. Mm-hmm. Low angle shots which emphasize him with his cigars and that kind of thing. And he was always, and Barry Lyndon has a lot of the shots in Barry Lyndon, which is a film I don't particularly care for, but uh, are just so carefully, carefully composed. In the way the girls move within the frame, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's slowed down. Uh, there's, a, there's a weird fluidity to the motion uh, mm-hmm. in these scenes that isn't um, really in the other, in, in any, well, I'm thinking of one scene where Danny, you know, he's all red rum and red rum, and it was sort of fo- photographed in reverse slow motion. So mm-hmm. uh, just the, the slow motion element of the Grady Girl scenes is, oh, my God, just super strange. I, I think somewhere along the line, um, it was noted that Kubrick had studied photography for a time under Diane Erbus. Oh, I didn't and, know that. And there's that a certainly photo. makes sense. There's a photo that she took of twins, and I think it's just called yes. Twins. And um, never he may have inadvertently or somehow, you know, like been referencing this photo. Although his daughter has has said that he hadn't, and if it, and if it was, uh, it was unintentional. It's just I, I think oh, it's a right. fascinating example of composition. 
And making the viewer just feel, and the ability course, to just make you feel strange when you're looking at it. The elevator shafts with the blood. I mean, give me Oh, break. my God, David. Oh, one of the theories. The, the, the fella in three, room 327 who, who claims that this is a, um, that the film is a message about the ill treatment of the American Indian. Right. He says that the blood from the elevator is the collective blood of the Indians buried right. on that site. Creepy. Yeah, um, but without thinking that, or knowing that, uh, and again, I still take the Native American thing more than the Holocaust or Apollo landing thing, because in the film, in the text of the film itself, you do have, you know, reference to the Native Americans. Yeah, and yeah, it's a little, a little more evident, I think, than some of the other theories. And I think that that uh, there is a way of uh, is there a possible way of seeing it as, as retribution or whatever? Mm. It's a possible reading. I think again, I still feel the film. I still like the maze-like metaphor. And, sure. And I think sure. it's interesting that it was not in the Stephen King original. You know, they make the point that the, that the maze itself is how someone builds a, a structure of things mm -hmm. in their mind. And I see that's really what I think the film, you know, if I'm looking for a, a common thread to the film, as opposed to these other theories, we do get effectively disoriented all the way through the film. Mm. And that, and that does contribute to um, Jack Nicholson's character becoming progressively unhinged. Hmm. And I see the two of those just merging, um, I think, brilliantly uh, in, in the overall construction of the film. The other things are red herrings, or maybe they're MacGuffins in the Hitchcock um, uh, sense of the word. And are there his own personal psychological things about where he then goes into writer's block and, yeah. and all of that? Yeah. Because that scene with Shelley Duvall looking at the typewriter, I think it's a scary... I mean, I, remember, uh, I just remember the first uh, time I ever saw that scene. I said, oh, my God. Oh, David. And then just shortly thereafter, just a wonderful use of the Steadicam as, as, as the operators, the Steadicam operators, are walking backwards up the steps, you know, from perhaps mm -hmm. Wendy's point of view at times, you know, where she hits him with the bat mm -hmm. at the top of the stairs. Oh, my God. Amazing. And, and as she becomes increasingly aware of the increasing dementia yeah. of the man she's with, I think it's a good psychological it's, uh, and, and she can't stand up for herself. You know, David, I, I have to say that um, in, in my experience working on films, uh, the first job I received as a camera assistant trainee, I was, uh, this is for the movie Betsy's Wedding, and I was hired by Kelvin Pike, who, much to my surprise, during the production, I... Uh, came to learn was Stanley Kubrick's camera operator. So naturally, <laughs> during this time, you know, I'm just a trainee and he's like, you know, just has the answer to everything. I really, really respected the guy. And then to find out that he uh, had all these, was coming up with all these amazing stories about Kubrick and working on 2001 and then filming the, um, uh, the storage room scene in The Shining and what, you know, what he had to go through for that. I was just... Uh, I, I was inspired to learn more about um, the making of The Shining because of this. And, and, I, and, you know, and how Kubrick had a sort of a go-to crew of people that he went to, a group of artists that I think he, uh, had over, over the years, created a really strong uh, trust with. I think, I think great filmmakers do that. You know, I would say Spielberg is great. You may differ with me on that. But uh, they have... Um, you know, like, I like go, go to people. 
And uh, maybe some elements of The Shining were, you know, representative of that. Like he could do things because he trusted, you know, what his the creative people around him were going to do. Like he knew he could. What was, what's fascinating is with the Steadicam, he knew that, you know, he, he could get the lens into places where he couldn't put it before. And he had guys that could really work this for him. He needed that. He had the sense of what... Um I mean, that's why when you go to, uh, oh, I think, A Misfire, the Barry Lyndon film. You think? The, um, yeah, I watched some of it the other day. I wanted to give it a second chance. I and... don't think I could do that. Uh, <laughs> the, um, right. But what he did do with, with the camera, you know, all the candle lighting and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And, of course, there are theories about Barry Lyndon. It comes out after a period of time, so they somehow, even though it's based on, what, a Thackeray novel, uh, that... He's really talking about Barry Goldwater and Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> okay. Uh, does the film bear up under that analysis? But that's certainly what people thought at the time. So the people in room 237, you know, there's precedence for that kind of, you know, what they've done, people have done with Kubrick films. Yeah. And, um, but it doesn't quite account for the passivity of the uh, Ryan O'Neill character, uh, <laughs> character in, in, um, in, in Barry Lyndon. David, I'm just all that more psyched now to see The Shining again. <laughs> well, I think it's a, way, it's a good way to sort of it because I do think that um, it's going to be video on demand. You know, it's coming out in theaters and it's video on demand. But 237 yeah, is a meticulously analytical shot-by-shot analysis of a lot of what goes on in The Shining. It's meticulous. On the other hand, it's bonkers. Uh, the, um, <laughs> it, has, it has its moments. And uh, on the other hand... Bonkers, but entertainingly so. For those who, who really... I mean, apart from just simply just the, the visceral fascination of The Shining, can The Shining be seen without a major theory of Stanley Kubrick? Hmm. Uh, can you just watch the film as a deeply, deeply unsettling suspense thriller? I think the answer is Yes. But if you see two room two thirty seven, uh, then you see you have to see the shining again and say there might be more to it than just simply being a really carefully crafted and unsettling suspense thriller. Mm. Me, I'm me, I'm going to watch both of them again. And I think it's that's you know I still think it's an open case. Uh, is is the shining? Um, well, you're right. When the shining first came out, I think people were disappointed with it for you know, the two reasons: is it a Kubrick film, and is it a uh, is it a you know you know, like, look at all the horror films that are going out now. I mean, every weekend, as a new horror film is going to be the number one box office hit. And people under 35 are going to see these things. Evil Dead, the, uh, uh, even, oh, what was the thing? Uh, uh, you know, whatever remake of Nightmare, not Nightmare on Elm Street. Texas but, Chainsaw 3D. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's, that, that would be one. And you, you, you have a built-in audience that's going to go for the low-budget horror film. Uh, of the week and The Shining doesn't measure up to that maybe they ought to re-release The Shining in 3D <laughs> there you, you know, go that, that would entirely go against whatever precautions uh, Kubrick had set uh, you know in stone that you cannot do with this film you know you have to <laughs> okay. show it a certain way never in 3D well I do think these these, uh, and I'm glad they've made a film like 237 Room mm-hmm. 237 because it's it, it, it made me more uh, curious about seeing The Shining again, uh, which when I originally saw it and in the subsequent times I've seen it, it's still a disturbing film. Hmm. And uh, I did not see the uh, the television remake of it, though, that Stephen King still seems to prefer. 
And uh, over the years, he's warmed to the shining. He didn't like it when he first saw it. He was he was really uh, deeply disturbed about it. But uh, I think he's come to say nicer things about it oh, over that's the good. years. David, nice talking to you. Good to talk fun. to you. It's fun to talk about the shining. Yeah, it is. That's the episode, everybody. Hope you enjoyed it. Always nice to talk with David. You can check out Diabolique Magazine online at diaboliquemagazine.com and be sure to pick up the latest issue. You're sure to love it. We put a lot of time and effort into it with a lot of great articles. So check it out. You can pick up the latest issue. You can preview some of it at horrorunlimited.com. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, if you have any questions, I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email. I'm at steve at horrorunlimited.com. Oh, and also, if you haven't done so already, Look for the Diabolique webcast on iTunes. Just type it into the iTunes search cell there and we'll come up. And if you subscribe to it, that would be awesome. And if you leave a review, that would be even more awesome. We'd really appreciate it. I'm Stephen Slaughterhead. Until next time, so long, everyone.